0: Welcome. welcome back to Love Sleepers Watched, everybody. It's a really exciting episode this week. You can tell us why from Jessica. Yeah,
1: so we were so thrilled this week to welcome author Madeline Miller onto the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Madeline is a wonderful writer. She has a classics background mm-hmm. and she has channeled her yeah. love of ancient mythology mm-hmm. into her novels. So she wrote the 2012 book, The Song of Achilles.
0: And the 20... 18 book um, Circe, which is kind of the main crux of the conversation, since it's been long listed for this year's Women's Prize, Yeah, which is an amazing achievement, um, but also we talk about her novels in general, since The Song of Achilles did also win Um, the Orange Prize, which is the previous iteration of the Women's Prize. So it's quite a good time to be talking about these things since the Women's Prize is currently shortlisting. And Madeline Miller was in the UK from America talking about Cersei. So it was a really great um, opportunity for us to talk to her. And we had a really good time, didn't we?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So we met Madeline Miller in a uh, London hotel restaurant Mm -hmm. and sat down with her over a cup of coffee and tea um, and had this really... Exciting, stimulating, Mm -hmm. passionate, really fun chat basically about all the themes of her two novels Mm -hmm. and other kind of wider themes Mm -hmm. like spanning, you know, women's literature... The you know the whole connotations of what does women's literature even mean? Yeah. Um, how she reinterprets classics for a modern audience yeah, and a whole
0: absolutely. lot of other stuff that you will you will listen to now. Yeah. So it's not very much of our voices this time. It's actually mostly uh, Madeline's, So should we get on with it? Yeah, let's do it.
1: <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, um Madeline. It's really exciting to. Um, talk to you about Cersei and Song of Achilles.
0: Um, so we thought we'd start off with a question I think you've gotten quite a lot that we're going to ask anyway is, uh, like why Cersei? How did this book come to you? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you both so much for having
2: me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Cersei has really been kind of part of my consciousness um, for a long time because I loved the Greek myths as a child and I was really excited about her as a character because I thought here finally is this female character who has a lot of power she can turn men into pigs she's a witch um, and she's not punished for it by the end of her story which is usually what happens to women with power in ancient mythology Um, and then, you know so many other female characters just don't even have a story at all they're just names or they they die Um, and so... That really drew me to her, and then I read the section with her and Odysseus in the Odyssey, and I remember just feeling incredibly disappointed by it because I thought, oh, you know, this will be great. She's smart and complicated. He's smart and complicated. There's going to have this kind of battle of wits and a really interesting conversation. But what happens in the scene in the Odyssey um, after she's turned Odysseus' men into pigs? It's actually just that he pulls a sword on her, and then she immediately sort of folds. She falls to her knees and begs for mercy, and um, and invites him into her bed. And I was I was just so frustrated by that. I felt like it was such a missed opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was really kind of all sprang from that. Um, and wanting to see more of her and, and understand her psychologically, because we get very, very little psychological understanding of her um, in the Odyssey. You know, we don't even know why she's turning men into pigs. It's sort of this huge mystery that has been treated over the centuries as if it's like, well, it's you know, it's just because she's evil. Yeah. Uh, which is completely uninteresting, particularly yeah. for a novelist. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to to dig into her motivations and her psychology and also construct a life that really had nothing to do with Odysseus. Um, you know, she has all these associations. She's the daughter of the sun god mm-hmm. Helios, she's the aunt of the Minotaur and the aunt of Medea. And so, you know, she's just a cameo in Odysseus's story. She's only kind of in two plus books of the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to flip that. And Odysseus is only in two plus chapters of the novel. Yeah. And I did that, you know, very deliberately because yeah. I wanted to keep him contained. Yeah. Yeah. He tends to spread. Um, and, yeah. you know, really make this about your life.
1: Yeah. And I think those themes of sort of giving back the power to a female character, making her the protagonist, and as you say, not just a cameo in someone else's story. Um, it's really exciting for me as a reader. Did you deliberately want her to be a kind of feminist heroine and perhaps um, sort of turn the concept of heroism on its head as well?
2: Yes, very much so. Um, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to allow her to be a full person. Sometimes when... When women get set at the center of the story, they're sort of idealized, and they're not really allowed to be kind of messy the same way that male heroes are allowed to be messy. And so, you know, I wanted her to be able to make mistakes and have regrets and start over and go mm-hmm. down wrong paths yeah. and sort of, you know, that, that life is messy, um, and women should be allowed to not be perfect. Yeah. Um, so that was an important part of it. Um, and also, it, it was very much about her kind of finding her voice in this world that is very hostile to mm-hmm. her having a voice. Mm-hmm. Um at, she's born a nymph, which in the ancient Greek mythology means she has basically no power at all, no agency over her own life. The nymphs in the ancient world were the ones who were being raped and assaulted and abused and handed over to husbands they didn't want to marry. And so, um, but when we see her on the Odyssey, here she is, with this witch. So how? How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, basically, she said, world. "I if I play by the rules of society, I will be, <laughs> you know, a pawn or prey." And yeah. so I have to do something else. I have to, I have to find my own way to, yeah. um, to have power.
0: <laughs> I think, and coming off that, then um, you know, her, you know, her power is kind of something. It's very much part of her nature and comes from that. Her place as a woman in a man's world. Did you kind of always know where her story was going to end? You don't have to say what the ending is, but did you kind of always know what her journey would be like and where she would end, or did it kind of change and morph as you started to write her? I actually always knew the ending, that was,
2: that was right from the beginning. Um, what I didn't know was where I was going to start. Yeah. I had no idea where sort of the beginning of her journey was, but I knew kind of the place I, I wanted to end on. So, yeah, I don't know. I did that. That's true of both of my novels. Yeah. Um, I knew the endings, but not the beginnings. Yeah.
1: And, and it is almost like a coming of age story. Yeah. But over, you know, her lifespan of like thousands of years. <laughs> I know if we all had that much time to grow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did think that actually. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, still young. I'm like a hundred, you know. Um, but and that's an example of kind of bringing this sort of like otherworldly, um, you know, more ancient mythological element of her character into the story. But also, she does have these like very modern <coughs> values, and I think that's kind of quite juxtaposed quite well, very effectively in in the book. How did you sort of draw upon ancient the ancient aspect and bring a kind of more modern perspective into the story? Mm-hmm. Well, for me,
2: it all kind of started with the
1: gods and thinking about what the gods are like in Greek
2: mythology, right. and the answer is terrible. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're extremely cruel and petty, self-involved, you know, they're constantly getting angry and holding grudges, and they really show very little empathy or, or mercy at all. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking, well, what would it be like to be born into a family like that? You know, and those are the people around you, and, and to feel alienated from that, but not really to understand that there's something else in the world. And so, part of her journey, I wanted to be this journey from that to, um, to something else. Yeah. And but she doesn't really know what. And I, I sort of or wanted her journey actually to mirror Odysseus's journey a little bit. That yeah. he's yearning for home, and she is also yearning for home. But her home is not a place; it's or something she has to invent for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Homer gives this really interesting detail about her where he describes her as the dread goddess who speaks like a human. And so that also kind of gave me that first feeling is if you were a goddess who spoke like a mortal living among gods, you would be an outcast. Yeah. Um, and so so I was sort of... I'm, I'm always trying to draw from little hints in Homer, little things in the ancient world, and then kind of put it in, into that context. But um, for me, empathy is the greatest human virtue. <clears throat> yeah. And also the great work of literature and art and mm-hmm. you know allowing yeah, yeah. us to live in someone else's life and so you know she is a person born with the capacity for empathy in a family that has no capacity for that yeah. and so that humanity mm-hmm. um, yes, that very human life. story i think yeah, a lot of people can identify with feeling alienated from, from their family or feeling you know in true. some ways It's almost like we're born on islands, and you know, our family is the island and it's everything we know. And then at some point, we get on a ship and we sail away, and we can look back at our. At our family, our island, and realize that um, it's maybe yeah. kind of strange. Yeah. Hopefully not as strange as Cersei's families, <laughs> but um, but very, very, you know, different or quirky or these things are bad or these things are good, and you start seeing everyone else's families, you know, in the world and how how they behave. And so that process of moving away from home and sort of disengaging from your family and defining who you are, um, I feel like that's a very timeless journey. And so it, it felt easy to... It felt like it was already there. I didn't really feel like I had to do anything to kind of force it in. Yeah.
1: So that was such a great beginning to our conversation. I feel like the minute Madeline started speaking, we were both like so enthralled by everything she had to say. Uh Um, And it's just so exciting, as we said, to get to speak
0: to the author of Mm -hmm. a
1: book that you have read and that you feel passionately about as we
0: both do we said the exact same thing in our episode about morgan the last one where it just gave us an extra entry into the book to be talking to its author its creator and madeline is so well versed in the reasons why she writes and her questions are so eloquently answered yeah. that I definitely felt, and will continue to feel, as you'll see in the rest of the interview, that I was just sitting there being like, yes, I agree. I will listen to your answers forever. Yes, great. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I agree. I think, as we said earlier, it was just really stimulating <laughs> to be sitting there listening to her discuss these themes. Yeah. And, you know, we had our questions that we prepared, but we both were, you know, so excited to speak to her that we wanted to talk to her about all these other things, some of which we did speak to her about Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it was just
0: a really great experience I think all round. Yeah, absolutely. So in the next part, we continue to kind of talk about the kind of themes coming out of Cersei as well as a bit more about her other books and about her ideas about the Women's Prize in general and it was all really illuminating um and you'll hear the bit where I got really fangirly about Patroclus and the Song of Achilles and I had sort of like wine myself.
1: <laughs> back yeah in. like if you think this little segue has been very um fangirly mm. then just wait till you hear you that. You just wait to hear the rest of it. Um, <laughs> and we even got a, a sneak
0: peek into what
1: Madeline is actually working on at the moment mm-hmm. and yeah. where she sees some of her writing going in the future. So. Yeah, let's without further ado, let's uh continue Continue interview.
0: All these other characters, um particularly I think Odysseus is a character that turns up in Song of Achilles and he's very recognizable. And there are other characters too, like uh like Daedalus, Athena, Medea, Minotaur, all that kind of thing. Um kind of Did you know if you want to include any certain people? And were there there certain people you want to sort of change their portrayal quite liberally?
2: Very much. And I I love working with all the different versions because, you know, all of these characters have been evolving for hundreds of years, thousands of years, as people have have done their own takes on them. So um, I was excited to work with Odysseus, of course, who has such a rich rich history of interpretation. Um, And I was really excited to work with Daedalus as well. He was a character that I, I really enjoyed. And actually, I, I didn't expect him to end up being such a large part of the novel. Mm. Some, sometimes novelists say the character surprised me. Mm. That was true of Daedalus. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I think he ultimately um, be- felt like he was becoming more and more important of Cersei's story, that she's this goddess who's almost human, and he's this human who has godlike powers. Mm-hmm. And so they're sort of right next to each other. Um, and he believes in craft and working with your hands the way she does, you know, they both have a vocation and he's really the first person she's met who has that. And so, you know, he plays a really important role um, in her life because she finally has someone who can understand that part of her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that was that was fun to 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 think about. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, working with many of the, the women of the story, you know, because a lot of these other female characters have, you know, have been very flattened in portraits, or they have just been left out entirely. So Circe's sister, um, Pasiphae, the mother of the Minotaur, who is a very intense person. Um, or at least I imagined you would have to be an intense person <laughs> to be the mother of the Minotaur. Yeah. Um, but there's very, very little about her. You know, Most of the focus in her story is on her husband, Minos, or her children, particularly Ariadne. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it it was great to do this, you know, to think of her as a sister, as Cersei's sister, and what was it like to grow up with the two of them. Um, And I I very much wanted her character to evolve and to sort of have... Cersei initially is very negative about her sister, and her sister ends up doing some fairly extreme things. But I think Cersei comes to understand that her sister is actually also struggling with a lot of the things that she is. Mm -hmm. She's just taken a different path. And that Cersei has... Been able to have this independence because she is alone, because she yeah. lives on an island. Mm-hmm. Pacify is trying to live in the world and have power as a woman, mm-hmm. and basically the only way to do that is to be a villain. Yeah, and so that's sort of how she has to go. Um, and then, of course, is a little bit of a spoiler, but um, working with Penelope was mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, I love that, you know, she... I I think Homer shows her as even more intelligent than her extremely intelligent husband, um, Odysseus. And just she's, you know... She's so psychologically underwritten. I mean, I don't mean to be criticizing Homer. Homer is not trying to give us the psychology of these characters. I think he implies it, but Mm -hmm. he's not really connecting the dots. He's not giving us sort of the internal monologue, the Hamlet soliloquy version of any of these characters. So, um, but I I think that really shows through with the women. We see, you know, Penelope is literally veiled the first time we meet her in the Odyssey, and so much of her character is is really veiled. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, to explore her and explore her in the context of, you know, also of Cersei. These are two women who have survived a lot in their life, um, and
0: they've survived it with their wits, and so Mm -hmm. I thought it would be interesting to to juxtapose them. Yeah, absolutely. Penelope definitely, uh, not to spoil anything, but she turns up in a way that I did not expect. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's really cool as well to be surprised by a story that you kind of already know quite a lot.
1: Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I really enjoyed how... So when Cersei is exiled to the island... And there's a, several chapters where she's on her own, um, which are quite gratifying to read after she's been in this, you know, unpleasant environment of the, the court. But you then have lots of characters do appear and interact with her. So it means there's lots of different kinds of relationships in the story. So you've got familial relationships, you've got um, sexual relationships and romantic relationships. And in all of those relationships, quite complicated, like, you know, even... Um, the men who Cersei seems to fall in love with like it's all they're always flawed and there's always multiple layers to those relationships so how did you kind of approach those different aspects of Cersei's life um well I think for her whole life
2: Cersei is is really searching for for friendship and for companionship Mm -hmm. and for for equal relationships for someone who will respect her for for who she is Um, and one of the things I I, so Penelope ends up playing an an important role in Mm -hmm. that (laughs) Um, but one of the things that I was interested in also is how if you are a woman in an extremely misogynist society in a society where women are totally constricted and disrespected and treated as objects is it possible to have a positive relationship with a man? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it possible for men to treat you you know, as, as sort of an independent being with your own wishes and your own desires, or are you always gonna be seen as an object? Are you always gonna yeah. be, you know, something that is used? Um, and so I think she she's trying to figure that out. And the answer for a lot of the men in her life is no, she can't have that kind of relationship. Um, but she has to kind of learn that and, and figure that out. She, I, in my imagination, she's straight. And so, you know, she's sort of thinking, well, do I do I just need to be by myself? Is, it pos- is this even mm-hmm. possible? Um, But the truth is, is that outliers have, you know, existed, that there have always been people, men and women both, who are kind of pushing against society's Mm -hmm. norms. And, you know, I think Patroclus actually is a great example of that in in the Iliad, Mm -hmm. that we hear of him, you know, he's described as being always gentle and kind to everyone which are, you know, frankly, shocking descriptions for an ancient Greek hero. Yeah. You know, Usually is savage and strong and brave and good in battle and sacking cities and all that kind of stuff. But those, so he himself is an outlier. And so eventually she does find some people who, like her, are, are kind of outliers yeah. and, and who are willing to look at the world around them and sort of forge their own path and reject things that they're being told they need to, they need to do. yeah.
0: So what's kind of been the most... You've been kind of touring Cersei for this paperback release and then the bit back release stuff as well last year. What's been the kind of most memorable or the best reaction to the book for you that you can bring out your head?
2: Um, oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, just hearing from so many... I, I think it's sort of... There's a double thing. One is is hearing from so many women that that the story spoke to them and that it was powerful for them. Um, There was one woman who came up to me. She recognized me while I was uh, at the gym. Um, (laughs) And she came up to me, which it was... Nice to know that I, I feel like I don't look like my author photo when I'm at the gym. So. <laughs> but anyway, she she came up to me and and she said, "I want you to know that I've I have a son who's heading off to college, mm-hmm. and I bought him a copy of Cersei and I'm buying all his close friends copies of Circe, and I'm telling them that if you read this and then go off to college, you will understand consent and you will understand women, yeah. and you and you know you'll be able to have empathy and and good relationships with women, which was just like wow, really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other thing that it has been wonderful is, is hearing from, from male readers who are saying, you know, both, I really identified with Circe, mm-hmm. which I'd love to hear, mm-hmm. um, and also, you know, thank you, I feel like I, I learned something. Yeah. So both of those have just been so moving and gratifying to me.
1: Yeah. And, and both your novels have a sort of reinterpreted these ancient stories. And um, and I think they are stories that you know we've seen reverberate throughout literature and film, you know, for, for many centuries. Do people tend to be open to reading like new versions of these stories? Do you find?
2: They do. Um, I didn't think they would at first. When I was working on Song of Achilles, I kept it completely secret. Mm -hmm. I didn't want any, I was afraid my classics friends and my classics mentors would be angry at me. (laughs) Um, But the truth is, is that this tradition of retellings is as old as Homer himself. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this is what, honestly, you know, the ancient tragedies, so many of them are just retelling these same stories. And, you know, Virgil is doing the same thing and, you know, Ovid as well, and Shakespeare, and Derek Walcott, and Margaret Atwood, that this, that this, there we have this unbroken line of retellings, and so I really shouldn't have worried, because I think that is totally part of the tradition, yeah. and that these stories, you know, live because we all just keep retelling them, and, and finding new things in them, and listening to new voices, um, and that's the part that I'm, I'm really most excited about, is that, most of these stories are about male aristocrats and, you know, but at the, at the edges of that, we have this sort of seething, you know, all, this, uh, all these seething other stories that are mm-hmm. slaves and women um, and people who, who are, you know, don't have power, don't have money, don't have influence. Um, and I love that we're opening up and listening to them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think actually, Tad takes me on to talking just a tune of bit about *The Song of Kiddies and yeah. *Troklos*, because that was what the one I first read. Yeah. Um, I read it what two years ago, mm-hmm. and I basically completely bought *Francesca* for just weeks talking about
1: it. I <laughs> just remember like we went for dinner, and Helena sat down and told me the entire plot <laughs> <laughs> with extreme like, <in-stream> passion.
0: So, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely took me away. And I think um, the key part of it, I think, is the overwhelming sort of theme of like love. In that book, which I think is even more powerful than in Cersei. Cersei is a slightly different kind of story. And the voice of Patroclus, and you said, you know, he was, she's written about in the myth as being really kind and gentle. And I've done a little bit of looking into it, and it seems that he is quite a standout character, especially in his relationship with Achilles, who's been interpreted and reinterpreted in lots of different kinds of um, media. Um, kind of, what was so key about creating Patroclus for you as the key character with the song Achilles and the vehicle for the entire kind of story that it is? Sure. Um, so it was two things. One was, I mean, I,
2: I was really intrigued by that portrait of Patroclus as, as this outlier. Um, I also really wanted to, uh, to answer a question, again, just like with Cersei, I was sort of thinking about why is she turning men into pigs? Mm-hmm. Who is Patroclus? Because he, his death... Sorry if that's a spoiler for our <laughs> listeners, um, but his death in the Iliad is the turning point of the Iliad's mm-hmm. entire plot. It is the linchpin on which on which the Iliad moves. Yeah. And you know, up till that point, Achilles is angry at the other Greeks, and he said, "I'm not going to fight anymore until Agamemnon personally apologizes, mm-hmm. and the only thing that matters to me is my reputation." And then Patroclus dies, and all that is gone. Mm-hmm. He immediately goes back to battle because he's just trying to deal with his grief by, you know taking vengeance on, on the Trojans. And so, but Homer doesn't really give us anything about their relationship. You know, we just, Patroclus is always in the background. We learn he's the most beloved companion. But we really don't see, you know, we, we take Homer in his word because Achilles' grief is just flies off the page. It's Mm -hmm. so intense and overwhelming. Um, But we don't see how they got to that point. So I really wanted to kind of tell the beginning. If that was the ending, Mm -hmm. what does the beginning look like? Who is this man who means so much to Achilles that, in fact, he means more than anything else Mm -hmm. in the world? Um, And uh, who is this man who means more to Achilles than Literally anything else. Yeah. Um. So so that was a piece of it, and then of course there was there was the fact that just like, you know, Circe was a feminist project. I was really frustrated that the interpretation of Achilles and Patroclus and lovers, which was completely established as you know a possible interpretation in the ancient world. Plato talks about them being mm-hmm. um, lovers, and Aeschylus. We have a, a fragment of a lost Aeschylus tragedy where he talks about um, them being lovers, and. But it had dropped out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hearing it in my classes. I wasn't reading it in literature that was talking about them. It was talking about his closest friend or his closest companion. And that was a, a legitimate way to take it, but it's not the only possible interpretation. Yeah. And so I basically feel like this other interpretation had been closeted, um, and I was really angry about that. <laughs> and I felt that in my reading, um, to me, it felt really obvious that they had some kind of romantic relationship because Achilles' mourning for him is so physical. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, he embracing the body and holding the body all night long, refusing to let it be burned because he couldn't be physically separated from it. That there was an aspect there that to me implied um, a physical and romantic relationship. So Mm -hmm. I really wanted to see that part of the conversation and part of
0: the record again. Yeah. Yeah. I find it's just it's so beautiful, literally. That like, completely struck me. I still. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I, I was doing a quick rereading of it yesterday and I was just like, why?
1: <laughs> I think, um, yeah, but, but I found the same with Cersei that it did just take me to this like other place. And I was saying to Helena that. Um, I don't read a, a lot of fantasy or those kind of novels like recently. Like, not out of choice, but just, you know, how these things happen. And it took me back to, like, reading those sorts of novels when I was young, like, when I was a child, and just being completely transported to another place. Um, and in the book, you know, you have kind of drawn upon Greece, obviously, as a as a location and a setting. Um, and how did you go about kind of researching that place, and I'm sure you've been, and that must have played a part. And actually, that kind of brings us on to another point we wanted to discuss about research in general. Mm-hmm. The books, obviously, meticulously both books meticulously researched, and you have so much knowledge about this, these worlds. Um, how do you kind of bring all that into into the storytelling?
2: Sure. Um, so, first of all, yes, I have been to Greece, and <laughs> it is incredibly important that those trips... I was had no idea I was going to be writing these novels one day when I was there. I was there on an archaeological dig, and I was there to travel around because I was a classicist, and yeah. I'm so, so grateful <laughs> that I ended up spending significant time there yeah. um, because you can get things from being there that you really can't get from research, that, mm-hmm. you know, seeing the way... and I mean, the, the Mediterranean Sea and, and the sea around the Greek islands is just so... Gorgeous, mm-hmm. and you know the way the light falls, and the way the air smells, and olive groves. I mean, just all these very like visceral details that you can really only get by by living in the ice. Yeah, and so, um, I also went to Turkey, which was uh, important. I saw Troy, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I would highly recommend. But um, but Turkey was important for me as well because in Homer, Circe's island is actually in the east. Um, later versions of the story sort of ended up putting it in over by Rome, as mm-hmm. um, a little island off of Rome, because the Romans wanted to claim everything for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I wanted sort of 25% Black Sea, 25% Amalfi Coast, mm-hmm. 25% Greek island, and right. sort of 25% mm-hmm. magic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was kind of my <laughs> my idea. Uh, but I, in terms of the research, so. I feel very fortunate because a lot of this, I I already had, you know, I can already read ancient Greek. I've already spent a lot of time studying the, so I don't have to do a lot of um, new research starting over with the text, but I do have to do a ton of material culture research. So I'm always thinking, I mean, looms, I cannot tell you how many hours I read about looms. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that's really important because I I need to be able to understand and sort of visualize how it's all working. Loom technology uh, and, also things like all the little um, all the pieces of jewelry, all the little daggers, all the you know, little pins, all those things are usually inspired by an actual archaeological find that we wow. have. Um, so that's important to me. But I, I think the key to research, in my opinion, is first of all to do it as you go. If you try and do it all beforehand, you just end up going down a rabbit hole and never writing. So you you really, I, I think I sort of, when I get to the loom section, okay, now I'm going to stop and, you know, start researching looms. Um, and so I, I think doing it along the way allows you to kind of keep the story flowing and, and only what you need. But I also think the, the other key thing about research is don't put it all in the book. Yeah, It should be like, you know, I consume it, but then 1% should end up in the novel. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of it is you know, me having a better understanding of the world so hopefully I can, I, you know, it's present in the sense of that I know it, but I don't have to share it with you because everything that I read about Looms would not be interesting to the reader. Um, and so I always think of it as kind of like an iceberg, you know, that the mm-hmm. reader sees what's up here, but there's this huge piece under, under it that helps to just make the world feel more real.
0: Yeah, mm. I think that's something that comes through very much in my rereading was the, re- the really um, uh, explicit relationship with nature that is present very much in Cersei because she is a nature re-witch um, and also in The some of Achilles because I think they inhabit this world which they're very much connected to, Achilles has this real connection with the outdoors and with moving around and I think a lot of the description of them as people is paralleled in kind of the nature that's surrounding them. Mm. Um, Is that kind of deliberate, or do you like writing about nature quite a lot, or kind of, where's that, how's that coming through?
2: Um, That's a really good question. Um, I I mean, I I wanted very much, they they are both very outdoor people, (laughs) and so, uh, particularly Cersei, who, you know, I I wanted her as a witch who is constantly working with, with the natural world to really just be steeped in it and to have such a strong relationship with nature. Um, I have always loved physic gardens and so that was really fun to sort of bring this knowledge that I had no idea would ever play into one of my novels um, in, into the book and, and just to really think about how does she interact with her with her surroundings, What are the actual plants? how do they look you know how do they look? How would they feel like? Um, because for her, she was born in these halls, you know that are all made of obsidian stone, and she never saw anything natural. And so, being out in the natural world is just this deep joy and source of connection mm-hmm. for her.
1: Yeah, and um, you, you touched upon like her doing her spells and sort of witchcraft element of the of the story, and the, the, the kind of concept of the witch is is a, an idea that we see in a lot of literature and um, for hundreds thousands of years. Um, how do you how do you kind of interpret and approach the idea of Cersei as a which like for example she it's something she has to kind of learn it, you know it doesn't it's, there's a natural element to it but there's also a process of, of study almost of and yeah. experimenting.
2: Yeah, well for me, for me witchcraft feels just like any any art or any craft, that it's something that, that does take work is very different from divine power that she grew up with and that she grew up seeing, you know, Zeus and Helios can just sort of shazam mm-hmm. um, and something happens but witchcraft is about knowledge and study and most importantly, um, practice. You know, mm-hmm. Trying something and it doesn't work and trying something again and it doesn't work. And I didn't intend those sections to reflect my writing process, but I realized by the last drop that they really did. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's because any sort of craft or art takes that kind of work and you have to really be willing to fail and to try mm-hmm. again. And that's something that Circe has that is very different from all the other gods, that they're not really yeah. willing to fail. Yeah. To try again—it's something she shares with humanity. Yeah. Um, you know that's a, another great thing that that humans are able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thinking about witchcraft, I also—you know—I I loved thinking about transformation. That she's this goddess of transformation, and so she is transforming herself as well as other people around mm-hmm. her. Um, and and as a witch, I mean, I, I think I, I wanted her to be this which is a word that we throw at women who have more power than we want them to have. That's that's a word that we use to say, um, to, to sort of take women down who we think are, you know, out of control in terms of their power. And so I, I wanted to, to honor that as well, that there's a real fear about Cersei, and you can see it in, yeah. in the Odyssey. She is this incarnation of male anxiety about female power. Yeah. Um, and and so I love that, I wanted to honor sort of that that, you know that she is an incredibly powerful being, um, or she becomes one eventually. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's through work and it's through yeah. attention and focus and artistry and craft. You know, I wanted lots of times. I, I don't read a lot of books where women have vocations. You know, yeah. where they have some like something that they're really passionate about that they do, mm-hmm. um, and that felt important to me.
1: Yeah. yeah, I agree. That was very satisfying to read about. And when she leaves the island, you know, on occasion and leaves her studies. I sort of found myself being concerned that she wouldn't to go back to it. <laughs> I was like, that's what she cares <laughs> about, you know. Someone saves her. Yeah, not yeah. someone saves her.
0: they so Cersei's okay. Yeah. Um, and actually, that kind, of, that kind of point about the importance of seeing women in these roles kind of brings me on to a kind of question about the Women's Prize, mm-hmm. which obviously um, Cersei's been long-listed for, and Song of won, back in its iteration of the Orange Prize. Mm-hmm. Kind of, what's the importance of that to you? And, you know, how, what's it like to be kind of on the long list again? Oh, well, it's—I mean—it's such an honor. It was—it
2: was a life-changing experience winning the Orange Prize, and um, I—I'm just—I I am so thrilled to be in the company of so many powerful women writers, mm-hmm. and to see all these different stories and all this art that they have made. And it's just—it's it, just a huge honor for me. Um, and I, and I, I think it's so important what the Women's Prize is doing, and I love how, how their emphasis is on, you know, these are brilliant books written by women for everyone. Mm-hmm. Because I think oftentimes sort of women's fiction, I don't know if this happens as much here, but this happens in, in the U.S., that, you know, Wikipedia has sort of um, American writers and then American female writers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm not integrated yeah. <laughs> um and i I, th- I think i hope i think that's been changed now but for a long time that that was the that was the case and and it was so sort of frustrating that you know when a man writes something it's supposed to be for everyone and when a woman writes something it's only for women yeah. and i think that the the woman's prize is, is really working to change that and to bring awareness to um all kinds of different different mm-hmm. stories so I've, I've written by women which i love um, and I think it's so interesting that there are all these retellings coming up, particularly written by women. And I think it's, you know, there there are so many um, reasons why that might be. But I think two are, I grew up with these stories, and I grew up loving them, but I also grew up angry with them. You know, I grew up frustrated and yeah. sort of feeling passionately, like why are the women so flat, why are the women all being treated as victims, mm-hmm. you know, why Why don't they really have, you know, why are they so cliched and stereotyped and, you know, seen as villains or seen as these pathetic, you know, love creatures, why don't they have a life? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of wanting to talk back to this material that I love and, and but allow women to have a fully three-dimensional form. So, so I think that that's a piece of it is that, is it you know, we're kind of reclaiming these texts that we love and, and mm-hmm. expanding the boundaries. Uh, and I think the other thing is just that as women we're keenly aware of all the ways that these texts do, you know, treat women um, and, and the way things like sexual assault is, is overlooked um, mm-hmm. and, you know being made into sex slaves and you know one of the things that is always disturbing to me is to look at all the various translations over the years of you know certain scenes in Ovid um, which are rapes mm-hmm. but have, you know either that's being really soft peddled mm-hmm. um, either the, the translator is clearly trying to kind of make us not see that yeah. or doesn't see it just doesn't see it it doesn't the translator obviously didn't think it was a rape, mm-hmm. um, even though it's very clear that yeah. it is. Yeah. And you know, just little moments like I can remember sitting in a classroom at one point translating Abid, um, and it's you know one of the classic sections in the metamorphoses where you know a god is, is chasing a, a nymph who's running away, and she's panicking and terrified. And so she's like flushed, and her hair gets all loose because she's running so quickly. And the god is like, "Oh, she looks so, she looks so attractive. She looks so much more attractive." It's like, "Oh, what a repulsive idea!" Um, and you know, we're all just discussing like the meter. Uh, and And, sort of that feeling of like, mm-hmm. does anybody see that this is completely yeah. unacceptable? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I think but I, I don't think I think oftentimes people feel so protective of these texts that they don't yeah, want to okay. sort of acknowledge it, but I think I think it is much it honors the original text to to talk about it. Mm-hmm. you know to say, this is really here. Yeah. Um, we have to acknowledge it. It's important to acknowledge it. And if we pretend it's not there, then we're not really reading a real text.
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, that definitely goes back to what you were saying about the Women's Prize being, um, being well, recognising books that do take women's stories and women's perspective in, into focus and shine a light. There are an you know, incredible array of um, books that have been longlisted this year. And I wondered if there's any others that you really enjoyed that you would recommend, or uh, feel perhaps shares. And I mean, we touched on the sort of Greek element, but maybe share some other elements of um, the plots in, in your in your book. Sure. Um,
0: are these specifically books on the long list? Uh, or? Yeah.
1: Or are there any other books as well? I mean, we always love the recommendations. <laughs> yeah. Anything you want, you
0: want to talk about or highlight
2: or something like that? I'm um, sure Let me think. Um I uh, I love. So, I haven't, I'm now working my way through the long sure. list. Yeah, so, <laughs> it is long. Um, so, but I, lo- I love Terry Jones and American Marriage. Um, I, I'm, I'm so glad it, it's getting some attention here. It was huge in America, mm-hmm. and I feel like it speaks to so much of, of the incredible racial injustice that happens yeah. um, in the American. Court system and 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 just in in American life and I, I think it's really important um, so I'm glad to see it getting highlighted yeah. over here. Um, I uh, I just started the Pisces which I'm really I'm oh, really yeah. interested in um, and again I sort of love that the that the writer is you know has. Uh, has this messy female character at the Mm -hmm. center who's searching and doesn't know all the answers and Mm -hmm. is sort of having um, thoughts that she feels like are are inappropriate or or feelings that that feel huge and and inappropriate. Um, And it's also just itself very transgressive. You know, it it clearly enjoys being being like, you know, which I I appreciate. let me think. Uh, does
1: um, <laughs> Sally Rooney's normal people? Oh yeah, I haven't read that.
2: that. Yes, everyone has been talking to me about about Sally Rooney's book, um, and I haven't read it yet. But I've been as I've been going through all these wonderful independent bookstores on this um, book. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. um, Book trip. I've been sort of slowly gathering, so I to then go home and read the all. <laughs> go home with like a twenty kilogram heavy suitcase yeah. sort of <laughs> Yes,
0: exactly, exactly.
2: And I left. I deliberately left room because I knew I was going to. Oh, do. it's the child,
0: so. And all aside from the Women's Prize list, is there anything that you've kind of read lately, or anything that like you know, some sticks with me, and I tend to, you know, if anyone ever asks me what my favorite book is, I'm always like, I can't
2: even.
0: But is there anything for you that you want to like highlight or talk about? that's recent or something
2: that's really stuck with you in terms of in the book world. Yes. Um, I I don't know if it came out over here or, or how big it may have been. I loved Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. It was, it was such a brilliant novel. And, you know, it was one of those books that I thought, oh, maybe I'm probably not going to like this because on the back it sort of described as like three generations of family, which I sometimes avoid those books. I feel guilty saying that. But <laughs> enough people told me that, you know... This is amazing. You need to read it. And yeah. so I started reading it. I was completely hooked. Mm-hmm. It was something I knew nothing about. You know, the lives of um, of Koreans transplanted to Japan, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there's so many things there about about you know women mm-hmm. and poverty and being immigrants and being refugees. And it's just it's, it's but all brilliantly told through these incredible characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved that. Uh, I always think about uh, when I'm thinking about sort of sort of women um, and women's stories, I always really appreciate Elizabeth von Arnim's Vera, mm-hmm. uh, which I think doesn't, it's kind of fallen off the radar a little bit, but it's this incredibly chilling story of, it, it has a little bit in common with Rebecca, but it's, it has, it's a story of domestic abuse um, and gaslighting, mm-hmm. kind of way before that was really getting talked about. Um, and it's actually inspired a little bit by her, I think her own marriage, which she was able to extricate herself from thank goodness um, but it's 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 amazing to see that women writers have been trying to tell these stories for a long time so I really I, I like to say I'm, I'm always amazed with how incredibly modern it it feels even though it's yeah. you know not not written in in our contemporary world um, I love Hillary Mantel. Yeah. I feel like she just gives <laughs> so much complexity to women and men's yeah. stories. Yeah, um, I she's one of my favorite writers. Um, let me think, who else? Uh, and oh, Lily King. I don't know if she's if she's over oh. here.
1: I read Euphoria. Oh, yes, Euphoria. Yeah. I love her reading. I read reading. that in the US, though. I'm not sure if it was, you know, as talked about here, but yeah, I thought that was an incredible book. Yes, yeah.
2: and so she sort of takes the, the life of Margaret Mead mm. um, and the early anthropologist um, and... This is like a fictionalized version, so a bunch yeah. of stuff happens that didn't actually happen to Margaret Mead, but this idea of a woman in a very man's field, and how she's constantly struggling with people sort of trying to um, control her ideas, and not just a woman, but a prodigy, just a prodigy in the field in general, among both women and men, and, and the resentment that gets, you know, yeah. put on her, was that was fascinating, but all of the Lee King's work, I love Father of the Rain, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a daughter struggling to come to terms with her father, and... Mm-hmm. Um, her work is just—it's wonderful. Yeah.
1: And as an author, how how does the role of reading kind of play into your work? You know, when you're writing your books, like, do you sort of not read as much during that time because you know you don't? Perhaps I don't know. Like, how how does it kind of work together?
2: Um, I I never read contemporary novels about whatever classical subject I'm writing about Mm -hmm. while I'm writing about it. Right. So. There are these amazing Margaret Atwood poems about Cersei. There's a fabulous Eudora Welty piece about Cersei. I didn't read any of it. Yeah. Um, I waited until I had finished the book, and now I've read them, and they're great. Yeah. But <laughs> um, because I really don't want sort of... I, it makes me anxious. I, I don't want to be taking things or feeling like I can't talk about yeah. something. Mm-hmm. You know, I it, so I just try and, like, that's an, there's an X out that happens. Um, but I love to read... In general, anything that's not that, I'm constantly reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read when I walk. Um, I read at the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I read every... Spring. I have two young children, so I can't... I don't have those, like, long Sunday afternoons now reading. Yeah. Um, but I, I read absolutely every possible moment that I can. And hearing other writers telling stories and just seeing the way they use words is always yeah. an incredible inspiration mm-hmm. for me. And I, I think that is the first
0: piece of advice when people say, "How can I be a better writer? Read. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, again, you probably ask this question a lot and you, you know, have lots of things on the go, I assume, but, like, what projects can you tell us about that you're working on next? Sure, I just finished
2: um, a short story based on Pandora, mm-hmm. um, which was my, that was how I dealt with, it was my personal exorcism at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, um, <laughs> right. but, uh, which were, I don't know how much they filtered it over, there was a horror show mm-hmm. in America.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> on <Okay>.
2: the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ongoing horror show. Uh, so that was that was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed digging into her story, and there's so much about her story. You know, this idea of sort of the woman who has this thing. She's not allowed to open and not allowed to look at. It. Yeah. And if she does, she'll ruin everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I am really inspired by The Tempest. The other thing I do is I direct Shakespeare plays, and I have this whole background really? in theater sure. that I has been incredibly important to me in terms of teaching me how to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so thinking about the Tempest and uh, then the final thing is the Aeneid, I, I love the Aeneid I would love mm-hmm. to work in its world, it has some really interesting female characters um, so one of, I don't know which, whether Tempest or Aeneid is going to come first but
1: yeah, I think um, yeah, I'd be really excited to read your take on the Tempest because <laughs> actually the island sort of element in yes. oh, is yeah. quite similar I yes. felt like the, you know, the island kind of having its own forces on the go and, and power over the characters and
0: Yes. It's, a, it's a similar form of magic but it's more like Shakespearean, yes. uh, you know, uh, rena- not Renaissance but you know, early Renaissance kind of magic mm. compared to the ancient Greek stuff which yes. I think is going to be slightly different, right? yeah. yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's really exciting I'm really looking forward to hopefully reading both those novels
0: soon. <laughs> <generally>. No pressure. <laughs> just generally, <laughs> like, you're just generally putting on like, Madeline Miller alerts is really <laughs> <thank> <laughs> But I think, um, gosh, we're approaching an hour now, so I think probably we should wrap up and not keep you from the Cambridge Literary Festival. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for having me on and
1: for such a yeah. Thanks for talking to us. So thank you so much to Madeline Miller for taking uh, Mm -hmm. the time out of her busy schedule while she was over in the UK um, to chat to us about her work and her inspiration and everything in between. It was such a great chat and we were both so excited and inspired. We literally left that
0: conversation like buzzing. Mm -hmm. Like so happy. Yeah, we definitely were. And um, of course, this is all to do and because of the Women's Prize, yeah. which uh, their long list is coming out at the end of April, and the winner should be announced in June, I believe. That's right, yeah. So, um, there's so many great books on the long list that Madeline also talked about, and many other ones, so definitely go and check that out if you'd like to. Madeline has got some work coming out in the next few years, so keep an eye out for that. Um... And as always, if you want to follow us and see what's going on, you would have known about this interview beforehand, you followed us on social That's media. True, yeah. We are loves labours watched no punctuation on Instagram, Real LLW on Twitter, and we also have an email, which is loves labours watched, no punctuation again at gmail.com. Anything you want to reach out to us about, chat to us about, even just give us a little like and a follow, that really helps us out and also make sure that we can keep giving you the content that you're interested in.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And this is Certainly won't be the last that we speak of the Women's Prize. Mm-hmm. So, if you have any thoughts on Circe or any of the other books, um, any of the other books that you'd really like us to speak about as mm-hmm. well, we'd really love to hear from you on that front. So, yeah. yeah, please do be in touch. And
0: as always, we've got more interesting stuff coming up in the next few months. So, you know, keep your eye out for when we next have an episode out. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, thanks. Talk to you later. Talk to <laughs> you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye. See you <laughs> later. <laughs>